Absolutely. So basically, in a typical weather prediction model, and same goes for an ocean prediction model. Uh, you saw what we call a primitive, a system of primitive equations. And that's basically a subset of, or really an extension of Navier-Stokes equations. So you have an um, equation for momentum conservation, mass conservation, and then on the atmosphere side, you solve for uh, thermodynamics. Welcome to a new episode of the Engineered Mind podcast. I'm your host, Yusef, and on this podcast, I'm talking to researchers, scientists, and engineers and how their work is shaping the world around us. For this episode, I am very honored to welcome Milan Kurcic to my show. He is a scientist, founder and author of the book Modern Fortran. He studies ocean waves in the Sustain Lab at the University of Miami using theory, experimentation and numerical modeling. His expertise is in wave physics and numerical weather prediction. In this podcast, Milan and I talked about weather prediction models and how they differ from the classical CFD approach the fundamental flaws of today's weather prediction models and how they can be optimized. We talk about the butterfly effect and chaos theory. We talk about Cloud Run, an on-demand SaaS platform for custom numerical weather prediction modeling. And last but not least, we cover Fortran, its origin, and how to combine it with machine learning. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's my podcast with Milan Kurcic. Hey Milan, welcome to my show. Hey Eustace, thanks so much for having me. This is so great to have a Fortran expert today on the show. So we never talked about Fortran on the podcast. So today is the day. Um, but before we jump into the, the beautiful aspect of Fortran and where we can use it, and um, maybe you can give us like a one or two minute bio. Who is Milan and how does your background look like? All right. So I'm a scientist, um, meteorologist and oceanographer. And meteorologist does not mean um, a TV weatherman, uh, basically atmospheric scientist and all social science. So atmosphere and ocean are very, uh, very connected, close to each other. So not only physically, but in terms of the, the science behind them, basically you can uh, explain them with the same, similar kind of equations, except the atmosphere has clouds and humidity um, and rain, whereas ocean has salinity. So there's, they're a little bit different in that sense, and they're um, the surface at which they connect. Uh, you have uh, waves, as you know, those are um, important for exchange between atmosphere and ocean. Uh, they're also very important for surf. That was, um, you know, when I was, say, high school to college um, kind of time, still, um, still in Serbia, where I grew up and went to school for my undergrad. Um, I, you know, I was watching a lot of surfing on TV and, you know, Serbia is a landlocked country. Even though we went to see um, to the Mediterranean uh, for vacation, uh, I never got to experience like open ocean and, and swell and, and surf. So that was always kind of like a fantasy for me. And that's, that's in a way what brought me um, uh, to grad school, uh, to, uh, to Miami, the University of Miami. Uh, I came in 2009, so I, I graduated with a degree in meteorology, and I always wanted to do something more with the ocean. So I applied to a, to a joint program, um, and that's where I got my PhD, um, stayed for a few years as a postdoc, moved around a little bit, uh, but now I'm for, for three years now, I've been back at um, University of Miami, and I'm an assistant scientist there um, in a lab called Sustain. Uh, laboratory that has uh, its main feature is um, a big wind wave tank 
and it's the largest wind wave tank in the world that can generate category five hurricane force winds and stronger and also to mechanically generate waves. And what's important about that is that we can put um, instruments in a controlled setting in the tank um, and set up any kind of condition that we want to study, uh, which is very difficult to do in the field. And th there's a lot of field work and aircraft reconnaissance when there are real hurricanes um, approaching, approaching land, but hurricanes are very transient and they're moving and they're very destructive. So it's very difficult to put out instruments uh, in the field uh, because they get destroyed, it's very expensive. So our lab is kind of a perfect setting for studying uh, fundamental physical processes about waves um, and air sea exchange and hurricanes. Mm -hmm. Is that um, a good good summary, do you think? That, that's a good summary, yes. And also when we talk about weather prediction like meteorology, is it does it fall under the category of computational fluid dynamics, short CFD? Is it something similar? Is it similar? Absolutely. So basically in a typical weather prediction model, and same goes for an ocean prediction model. Uh, you saw what we call a primitive, a system of primitive equations. And that's basically a subset of, or really an extension of Navier-Stokes equations. So you have an um, equation for momentum conservation, mass conservation, and then on the atmosphere side, you solve for uh, thermodynamics, uh, for uh, condensation. Uh, so basically, how how does uh, you know humidity and temperature lead to generation of uh, rain droplets? How do rain droplets going to rain when rain falls out? How does that affect uh, the thermodynamics? So it's a bit of an extended system of Navier-Stokes equations and. One important difference in weather prediction models relative to more classical CFD is that there are many processes that are unresolved on the grid. So there are several or maybe even up to a dozen uh, subgrid scale parameterization schemes. So you can think of them as uh, smaller, typically 1D empirical models that to run either on each grid or on the column. So a typical could be when you have, say, convective clouds, and you can't really resolve, you know, the, the physical process that drives the generation of clouds and rain droplets and all that. You need to have, you know, strong updraft, vertical motion uh, going up in the atmosphere. And with grids that we can typically resolve, for weather prediction models nowadays, that's about one kilometer size grid cell. Mm -hmm. So if you're, and that's, you know, that's more typical for regional models if you're solving only for say Europe or US. And for global, maybe it's more typical is about 10 kilometers. So now if you imagine a grid cell of a 10 kilometers, that's, you know, you get one, um, one value of the velocity, mass, temperature, humidity, pressure for, for a 10, 10 by 10 kilometer cell. So, and you know, if you look out, typical clouds are, you know, they can be bigger than that, but often they're smaller. So they're unresolved in the model. So then we have an empirical uh, model, what we call a parameterization scheme that solves for the contribution of unresolved clouds on the grid resolved uh, parameters, like UVW, temperature, humidity, pressure, and so on. 
Wow, that's so interesting. So when we talk about 10 by 10 a kilometer grid, like that sounds huge. For example, when you start doing computation for dynamics in, in university, for example, you have a few millimeters or a few centimeters of a grid, and now you have like 10 by 10 kilometers. What about the turbulence model? Is it something that we know from uni, you include maybe large eddy simulations in your weather prediction, or is it like a special kind of turbulence modeling? Yeah, there's definitely, so for more specialty applications, when you go to finer, you know, what we call, uh, uh, we call them basically LES scale. So when you get down to about say 100 meters, a lot of people use, um, so the key is to turn off uh, a more crude empirical model that resolves the mixing and the turbulence in the, in the boundary layer and to use say an LES. And then that's still far from getting down to, you know, DNS kind of, uh, kind of scale. People, there, there's people and groups who, uh, who do that kind of modeling for atmosphere and ocean uh, applications, but that's very specialized. Uh, so, yeah, there are models uh, that have where you can enable an LES kind of mixing in the boundary layer as a, you know, as a model switch. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that this is like a super complicated and incredibly fascinating topic. So before we jump into the implementation, then we talk about programming languages. I think a lot of people ask themselves when they watch TV and the weather news, they'd be like, okay, they say tomorrow it's sunny, but then suddenly it's cloudy. They're like, okay, why do we even have weather models? Well, we have a model and some models, all models are wrong, but some are useful. How good do you think these weather predictions are in fact? And can we do better? And how, where do you see it going maybe in 10 years, 15 years? especially now with the rise of faster computers. Yeah, um, so short, short answer in my opinion, I think we can definitely do better and it's, we are improving uh, year over year. So with um, these kind of models and really any nonlinear chaotic system, so turbulence and, you know, atmosphere has turbulence in it, ocean has turbulence in it. Um, it's a nonlinear uh, and chaotic system. So what we mean by chaotic is that a small perturbation or error in the initial condition grows fast uh, because of the nonlinearities um, in the equation. So for example, in the Navier-Stokes, uh, the advection term is say, you know, in simplest terms, u nabla u, right? And so u multiplies the gradient of itself uh, so that's a nonlinear term because it's um, basically it, it multiplies itself. So small in that kind of system, small errors grow very fast. And that's why we have, um, you know, you could say it's arguably a fundamental limit in weather predictability. By weather predictability, I mean how, how far and how well can you predict weather, the ability to predict weather. Um, and any kind of nonlinear system like that, uh, basically errors come from two things, initial conditions. So if you have a perfect initial state of the atmosphere, then you also need a perfect model. So you need the complete detailed and exact representation of, of the system in your mathematics and your numerical implementation so on. So, now you see there's two problems. There's problem in the initial conditions. We can't possibly know the exact initial state of the atmosphere. And by initial state, I mean 
the time at which you initialize your simulation and then onwards. So we call it, say, uh, time zero. Mm -hmm. So we can't possibly know initial conditions perfectly. You know, even if we had full coverage and we don't, um, okay, to, to, to speak a little about coverage. So we have a lot of um, groundwater stations over land, more so in the west, Western hemisphere than in the Eastern hemisphere more so in the northern hemisphere than in the southern hemisphere that just because of um, global economics uh, and then we have more more data on land than we have over the ocean it's very difficult to put and maintain stations over the ocean we do have some buoys that are well maintained but they're very uh scarce relative to land measurements now what helped a lot starting um late 60s 70s are observations from space, from satellites. So now because polar orbiting satellites, you know, they go very fast, they make their orbits fast, they do, I believe, fewer several orbits uh, per day, you can get pretty good global coverage, but with a lot of holes in between. So now you're kind of starting to fill the gaps over the ocean, over southern hemisphere and so on. But we are still far from full coverage. And another challenge is even if you, if you have so many satellites to cover the full globe, uh, there's still challenges in resolving um, the, the vertical distribution of properties in the atmosphere. So we don't worry only about what's happening at the surface. We need to know what's happening in the full uh, troposphere. So that's at least you know the lower 10 kilometers of the atmosphere and uh, I'd say even 15 or 20 are important. Uh, so we are still far from having even decent initial conditions for weather prediction models. So that's one. And another is, is imperfect models. Mm. We, we have, like I said earlier, we have coarse grids. Uh, we have a lot of processes that are unresolved on those grids. And we fill those gaps with uh, imperfect empirical parameterization models. So you have initial condition errors, you have model errors, and combining the two, your errors in your simulation grow to a point where the quality of your forecast cannot be distinguished from just looking at a climatology. By climatology, I mean past archives of data. You know, if so what's today? Today is September 16. You know, your weather forecast error is saturated if you don't get any useful information beyond looking at, oh, what was the weather like September 16 last year or the year before that, or averaged over the past 50 years. That's what we mean by climatology. Uh, so once you reach, basically, it's kind of like an S-curve, uh, how your error grows, you know starts slow, then grows, 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 and then it tapers off to basically climatological uh, error at which you don't have any more useful information. I see. It's also beautiful that you mentioned this with the initial conditions, which is like there's this analogy with the butterfly effect, right? That a butterfly, like the moving the wings of a butterfly in one country or one place could cause a tornado in another place. So it's really... That's exactly uh, right. So I believe that analogy actually came from um, the same guy who discovered chaos 
uh, in nonlinear systems at Lorentz. He was um, a meteorologist, um, I believe, at MIT in the in the 60s, 70s. Um, so he was um, he's a quite important um, historical figure for for meteorology mm -hmm. um, because of his discovery. Yeah, and he, you know he um, people will find this interesting. He discovered it kind of by accident. He was running his um, simulations. And at some point, so we write rest, what we call restart files every say, every day or so. Uh, basically, it's a snapshot of the full model, basically a snapshot of your model on data, on disk. So you store it so that if your simulation crashes for some reason, like power goes out, mm -hmm. then you can go back to that snapshot and you can restart it. And you should be able to restart it in a you know bit-to-bit -bit reproducible way. You, you know, if you continue from that file, and you redo the simulation, this should be exactly the same. Well, what he found was that uh, his simulations were not, they were different every time he would restart it. And he found that it had to do with the limit, like the precision limit to which uh, he was storing uh, his data, which led him to a conclusion in finding that, well, these small, you know, round of errors would every time build up to you know, basically through chaos to a completely different state in his simulation. And that led to um, what we now understand as, uh, as chaos. Yeah, that's beautiful that you mentioned this because these round-off errors bring us to the numerical aspect. Of, well, of course, humans can kind of predict when they spill out a bottle how the water would move. But of course, if we go to large scale like climate modeling, you need computers doing these calculations. When it, so that brings us to programming and actually efficiently programming on large systems. So you also were involved in something called Cloud Run, which is like a SaaS application for weather prediction. Could you walk us through, um, maybe give us an idea of how much calculation power is actually needed to do, to run a weather prediction? Ah, okay. So, so Cloud Run is basically um, a SaaS for WARF, SaaS being software as a service, and WARF being the weather research and forecasting model. Um, so it spells WRF, but we don't pronounce it WRF, we pronounce it WARF, like Fisherman's Wharf. Uh, anyhow, so WARF is, um, it's open source, actually, it's a public domain software. It's developed by NCAR. NCAR is a national center for uh, atmospheric research funded by NSF. It's been, I believe it was initially developed um, sometime in the late 90s, maybe early 2000. It has evolved from previous iteration, so other models. Uh, but basically, it's the most widely used um, open source weather prediction model. So, you know, most people who run, you know, weather prediction for the research, if they're not part of some, you know, national lab, like, you know, Navy, Navy has their own models. NOAA has their own models that they run in prediction, but usually university teams, um, industry often run WARF because that's kind of the the most widely used, most uh, most robust, most mature. Uh, it, it has many many features, many parameterization schemes, many contributors. It's a you know maybe the analogy say for machine learning crowd, uh, WARF is the TensorFlow of uh, atmospheric modeling. Mm -hmm. So during my, uh, my PhD studies and also onward since, 
I was working a lot with Worf and I was extending it and I was uh, coupling Worf to an ocean model and a wave model. Coupling means, you know, when you take separate models and they're not, they're originally designed to run on their own, but you want to say when you want to solve for the ocean as well, and you want to pass information between atmosphere and ocean. For example, winds from the atmosphere push the ocean and drive ocean currents. So ocean should respond to the wind from the atmosphere. And likewise, when you have a hurricane passing through and that stirs a lot of water and you get ocean cooling at the surface, atmosphere should be able to feel that um, colder, colder water coming up. And to accomplish that, coupled system, we need to connect the two models and make them run together. So basically, they're in practice on a computer. They're running side by side, but they're each making one step at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at each step, they're also talking to each other. Uh, so basically, ex exchanging uh, typically 2D arrays, sometimes 3D arrays. So you just kind of, you know, you program that stuff, uh, you make it um, a single application, and then you run it. Mm -hmm. Is that what so, we call? Is that what we would call a co-simulation then? I guess I never, honestly, I never heard the term co-simulation. But I guess that's just different fields. Yeah, um, engineering field, okay. mechanical engineering. Got it. Okay, I guess uh, like co-simulation. Mm -hmm. So, so I work a lot with Worf, and Worf is very, even though it's uh, mature and well-developed and well-used software, it's still for the user. It's very low level. Like you do a lot of, um, you know, command line scripting, you edit configuration files, you know, they're just plain text files. You do a lot of stuff in the terminal. It's very tedious. It's very time consuming. And because it's very um, atmospheric science specific, it's not user friendly. So somebody coming in from another discipline would have a very different difficult time learning the system, getting it to run. You know, typically from me uh, talking to people, it takes three to six months for an average, say, PhD student or a postdoc to pick up the whole system and kind of learn their way on how to run it. So, you know, three to six months is very difficult time. Uh, sorry, very long time for somebody to, to be learning this stuff. And even though there is uh, comprehensive documentation. It's very expert oriented. So it's, you know, there's relatively a lack of, you know, tutorials, blog posts, like you would have for Keras or TensorFlow or PyTorch, things like that, where you can, you know, just Google that because so many people are doing it. People are writing about it, writing tutorials, um, giving, um, giving online tutorials, say on YouTube or at conferences. So there's a lot of resources. So that wasn't the case at all with Worf. So people who would want to learn it from the start, they would struggle a lot. And it was the same with me. But um, as you know, you know, you, you kind of have infinite time <laughs> in your PhD to uh, do this kind of stuff. Um, so eventually you learn, you, you work a lot, you, you develop expertise. So and a lot of people struggled in the same way uh, that I did. And so those are kind of basically um, need for expertise. And two, 
what I didn't mention yet, these models run on very large computers. So you need many, many CPUs to run any kind of useful production grade simulation, just like in you know, high-end CFD. Uh, you can't really run it on, on your laptop. So these are, in retrospect, what are the two key, two key problems that uh, CloudRun aimed to solve. However, I did not, you know, in retrospect, I did not identify these problems and said, okay, I'm gonna solve this problem uh, by making CloudRun. It was more kind of like an accidental stumble upon, you know, I, um, I, the story is kind of um, maybe silly, maybe funny. You know, I, I just, in 2016, I, I was kind of, um, I, was, I was tired and kind of lonely in, you know, in academia and the research world. And um, you spend a lot of time just like working on your problems. Sometimes you collaborate, um, but it's, it's very, for, for me at least, it was, you know, very low level. So I, I would often feel like I was kind of spending long, like a lo long periods of time in a cave you know, isolated, isolated from everybody else because, you know, I was solving um, my science problems. And often it's, it can be discouraging, um, you know, the, how, you know, it can, academia publishing is very, very important. Um, I struggled with, uh, with publishing for a long time, even though I did publish and, you know, like, you know, objectively looking, I have a lot of, you know, I was, I ended up uh, collaborating with many people in the end, but there was a time, and especially during my PhD, when I was uh, kind of feeling alone in my, um, um, in my own, you know, science topic, and we had a group, but, you know, and we interacted, but it wasn't really uh, collaborative, to say. So, you know, I did look for a while into, you know, maybe transitioning to industry. And a lot of people are writing online about tra transition from academia to industry. And it's generally, it can be very daunting. Um, and especially when you really people say, oh, once, you know, once you leave academia, it's very difficult to go back. At the same time, I loved and still love um, the kind of the personal freedom that academia gives you. It's kind of, you know, you have your, as long as you have money, like as long as you have funding to do your project, you kind of have freedom how you how you want to do it. You know, pending any you know any um, co-author, sorry, collaborators that you have on the project or your uh, supervisor. But in general, most people, you know, they don't care when you work. They don't care how you work. Um, they don't look if you're you know showing up. Again, most people there are exceptions, but it. For me, research in academia has this very nice lifestyle aspect that you know I enjoy and I don't want to um, give up. And at the same time, um, it was difficult to not notice how underpaid uh, professional academic scientists uh, are. Say, you know, in the U.S., coming out of uh, a PhD, uh, you you get a postdoc. You know, maybe your salary is about the same or even lower than entry level, you know, so software developer just just coming out of college or even high school, you know. Uh, and 
that can be dis- discouraging as well. So there's, for me personally in life, there's there's pros and cons to these things. But I did during that time, I did yearn for something more, and I don't mean having more things, but more like doing more things, kind of doing more different things. Uh, so I was, you know, I was reading forums. I, you know, I started reading. I found out about this um, uh, uh, Hacker News uh, forum. Basically, it's like uh, a Twitter board. Sorry, not Twitter board. Uh, a Reddit-like board for um, uh, for tech and startups. Blah blah blah. I was reading there, and then somebody there, uh, and I, like launched their little uh, side product or little startup it was called deploy dplyco it's not I, I don't think it exists anymore but basically it's um uh, they would offer you a single click button to launch a cloud instance uh, for free and you get a free cloud instance for an hour and then if you want to extend it you you have to pay money and that, that was the first time I tried a cloud instance. And, you know, up to that point for, for a few years, I was reading a lot about it, but I had no idea what it's like in practice and what, what are all the things that it can be used for. So when I tried that, I realized, hey, I'm actually in the same kind of interface, same kind of, um, you know, I'm in an Ubuntu shell and there's all these tools that I can install and download and, oh, let me try to compile this Fortran program, this C program. Oh, it compiles and runs. This is interesting. And this is a computer sitting somewhere far away. It's not even here. And I'm not even paying for this. Sure, it's going to expire in an hour. I I think their main idea or selling point was to give an easy access for developers to showcase, uh, to demo their their product or their uh, open source project, whatever, uh, without users having to pay for uh, cloud instance or having to run something on their own computer. Anyhow, this kind of put a put a seed in my head. Hey, so I can actually call a server, like just spin it up out of nothing, uh, and do something. I can. I mean, at that point, I even like downloaded the Worf and like compiled it and uh, and ran it, and it ran. And I was like, wow, this is um. It for for me it was kind of. Um, uh, mind-blowing even though at the time so this was late 2016 at the time there were you know in retrospect I discovered there were few other teams fewer people exploring uh, this kind of stuff um, so I went to I, I looked up you know cloud providers and I looked you know AWS was very intimidating with all the options and stuff and uh, it was similar with um, Google Cloud Platform that was a little bit, seemed a little bit easier, but still to me, it was daunting. Like how many options there were, like it wasn't clear to me, hey, how, how do I just get a server with these kinds of uh, specs, like CPU, RAM, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then there was this um, provider called uh, DigitalOcean that made, basically made it very simple and straightforward. And I think at the time they were advertising themselves as like developer, developer friendly um, cloud provider. And they were relatively um, small, really good support. That, that's what I liked about them. So I, 
I started experimenting on there at the same time. I was, I was talking on the phone with my friend and old roommate, Josh. And I was telling him about this, um, this thing I was experimenting in and how, so what if we could make it easy for people to run Worf without necessarily having expertise to run all the shell commands and edit the files themselves and without access to uh, high-performance computing. I myself in my PhD was very lucky that my supervisor always had a small cluster just for the lab. So even though we used university resources, uh, which, which was always a larger supercomputer, um, we always had our own uh, on the, it was in the same building, but on the, on the floor downstairs, our own, like usually 100 to 100 core small cluster. There were no queues, no other users uh, bogging down the system. So it was very easy to run. But actually most people in, in academia, so most people like me, I don't think they have that kind of uh, luxury. Usually they have to go either to a, a national lab supercomputer and waiting queues, apply, apply for um, CPU allocations, things like that. So it's a lot of, there's a lot of bureaucracy and um, just administrative uh, friction uh, associated with that. So we thought like, could we make running Worf very easy for people and without them having to have their own computer? And Josh thought it was a great idea. And he said, you know, I was just kind of telling my ideas to Josh, but Josh said, oh, is this something I could help you with? And I was like, oh my God, I never thought about this, but we could work on this together. And so we did. Uh, so neither of us were interested in uh, leaving our full-time jobs, uh, which, you know, we enjoyed them for different reasons. I really cared about my, you know, my lifestyle and, you know, the personal freedom that academic setting gives you. Uh, but we started working on this, you know, evenings and weekends, um, and we launched it in early 2018. Initially, we designed it as um, kind of a, basically an abstraction of Worf, but for an expert user like me. And that was a, that was a mistake because People like me, uh, they were in academia and in academia, the funding cycles are very slow and, and tedious. Usually, you know, you have a project uh, three to five years. Um, you need to apply, apply for grants, you write proposal. In the proposals, you need to write how much money you're gonna spend on computing. At the time and probably still uh, funding agencies weren't excited to pay for commercial cloud providers when there were all these um, subsidized supercomputer centers that were uh, made, like designed and made for, you know, for people like that to do research on. So it was very difficult to get people to pay for a service like that, even though everybody told us, oh man, this is, this is so cool um, and exciting. And, you know, for Wharf, it's groundbreaking. But when it came to paying money for it, nobody was, nobody was ready uh, to commit and start using it. And so we also announced it on, when, when we launched, we announced on Hacker News, and there was a really 
warm and overwhelming response. So it's, sometimes it's it's not the case. You often see comments uh, like, oh, like, why would you make this? Or like, what is this even for? But uh, to my pleasant surprise, it was very, very nice response. And a lot of people um, asked good questions and, you know, wished as well. But an interesting thing is we started getting feedback and a lot of questions from um, like recreational outdoor sports people. So hiking, mountain climbing um, expeditions, uh, later sailboat racing. Um, and none of, so all of these people from these kind of outdoor sports um, industries, they care a lot about weather, but they don't have the weather modeling expertise that they would need to like, oh, how, like, so our interface at the time, you still needed to kind of put in some parameters, even though the wharf, wharf was already, you know, compiled and set up in the cloud, ready to run. So when you'd run it, it would spit out output files and you would be able to download them from the browser immediately. But for these people who weren't experts, that was, uh, you know, they couldn't get anything useful out of it. So they started pushing us toward, you know, really simplifying the interface and making data in an as accessible form as possible. So one of our early adopters, um, Chris Bedford, he, so he's a, a weather coach for clients, um, sailboat racers. So he's a, an ex-sailboat um, racer himself as well, but he has coached many, many like national teams, Olympic teams uh, around the world. And so he was our early adopter and he gave us a lot of um, good guidance on like how to make this product accessible for sailboat racers, which ended up being our main, our main target audience, uh, which is not something that I, I didn't even know about sailboat racers when we started it, when we launched it. So I, for me, that was a kind of a, a big takeaway that often we make something and we think we're making it you know, I mean, sometimes we're making things for our own curiosity or to solve our own problem, but we don't realize how is it useful to other people who could use it for some completely different um, application. Mm -hmm. That was a long Anyhow. story, Milan. That was a long story. I really appreciate it that you share all of this with right. us. Very, very interesting, especially like um, how the SaaS world looked like um, back in 2018, it wasn't too long ago. But one thing I think we forgot to mention is that CloudRoom was basically based on around 1 million lines of open source Fortran code, right? And the question now is that people might ask is why Fortran? Why not any other language? Ah, okay. So yes, you mentioned 1 million lines of Fortran. So that's specifically, we're talking about Worf. So Worf, Worf is implementing Fortran. Mm -hmm. Maybe a few percent of it is in C, uh, but it's, it's a big, um, Fortran application. And why Fortran? So Fortran is uh, the oldest high-level programming language. So it's uh, it started in the late 50s um, at IBM, uh, invented by John Backus. And so it has influenced basically all high-level high high-level programming languages 
uh, that came that followed after. So Lisp came soon after, Algol came soon after, C came a little later, and then you have all these like languages branching out as we go uh, toward today. Now, despite being old, and you know, for unfortunately, you know, most people you know associate Fortune with something very old, outdated, ancient history. So there's a lot of um, stigma and myths about it. But most people also don't know that Fortune kept evolving uh, throughout all these years. And it has been an international standard since, uh, I believe, either late 70s or early 80s. Uh, both on, so an international standard ISO and uh, an American standard. Um, a standard helps give large businesses and assurances that uh, the language is um, certified and guaranteed to be uh, performing for certain use. Uh, so I believe to businesses it gives certain sense of um, security. Now, Fortran um, evolves, it has evolved uh, in paradigms. Uh, it's remain because of its um, long legacy and many mature compilers that have evolved over time, uh, it remains the dominant language to use in scientific and engineering applications beside uh, C++, uh, maybe C, but it also has a large share on most uh, supercomputers in terms of um, CPU hours that are spent. And over time it has evolved um, in several programming paradigms. So it started as, an, as a purely imperative uh, language and you know soon in I, I believe in its next iteration um, you know you could do functions so it, it became procedural uh, later in so in the 90s it became uh, also ob you could do object-oriented programming uh, and as of 2014 2008 which is the next to the most recent uh, standard parallel programming is part of fortune syntax so you don't need to reach for MPI, which is a library, uh, to do your parallel computing, but you have syntax elements to express uh, parallel programs that can be either on a shared memory system, like a multi-core laptop, or it can be on a distributed, distributed memory system, like a supercomputer, or you can even, you know, you can write in the cloud, you can run parallel programs on servers around the world. It really, it, it doesn't matter. And um, again, it's part of the language syntax. And now with uh, Fortune 2018, it has even more uh, features like teams, events, uh, collective subroutines to express uh, parallel algorithms. So that's, um, that's uh, I, I think it's a language, Fortran's uh, main selling point. Uh, it's also because of its long legacy in mature compilers, it's very efficient. Um, so it's very easy for a novice to write math in Fortran like they would write it, say, on a blackboard. It's very intuitive. Um, and the resulting program would be very efficient 
out of the box, uh, even for a novice programmer, which is not necessarily the case with um, languages, say, like um, Python and Julia, which serve a bit different uh, different uh, use cases, and they are generally more more flexible, more powerful. Uh, but to make really uh, well-performed programs, uh, you really need to kind of almost master the language to uh, to do that, which is not the case with Fortran. Mm -hmm. Even you know, uh, early sorry novice novice Fortran programmers get to very performant programs very fast. And I guess that's why it's still dominant in the science and engineering uh, disciplines because scientists, they, you know, they want to solve their, they, they don't want to care about, you know, software development. They want to solve their problem, you know, as soon as they can and move on. So Fortran su suits that um, need very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for the background, Milan. And also, I think you kind of contributed to this renaissance of Fortran by writing a book called Modern Fortran. So I think the audience is interested in what can they expect from your book and why, why should they get, yeah, looks beautiful. I like it. Thanks so much. Why should they get the book in the first place? So uh, the book is basically a beginner's book. Um, if you're an advanced Fortran programmer, um, you'll probably still get something useful out of it. You'll probably have fun with it because there's a lot of uh, practical hands-on uh, examples uh, to work through, but it's really geared toward beginners. Ideally, you should know you should know what the variables are. You should know what functions are, maybe what you know for loops are or if blocks. Uh, but beyond that, you you don't really need to know anything more. You don't need to know anything about Fortran. And really, you should learn Fortran and use um, get this book um, if you like to learn through uh, by practicing through interesting uh, real world hands on uh, examples and if you know that you or think that you need fortune for your work so if you need uh, very you know high performance or parallel code uh, that you can write relatively easily um, with you know not much no no need for like high expertise uh, fortune is the language uh, for you and Fortran has indeed, you know, it has suffered in the past 20 or 30 years. Basically, Fortran has not caught up with the developments that other languages have had in the internet era. So what came with basically internet with forums, with exchanging code on address with GitHub, uh, with, you know, GitHub repositories, people sharing uh, their open source code Fortran has for a long time stayed kind of in their own like little research and academic bubbles. And it has not managed up, up to recently to gain momentum in terms of open source communities and uh, open source collaboration on, uh, on modern tooling for Fortran. So even though Fortran was always good with mature compilers, there are about a dozen either open source or free or commercial uh, compilers. Most of them are really good. But in general, it's, for example, Fortran doesn't really have a comprehensive standard library like, say, 
Python or Go or Rust have. Uh, Fortune doesn't have an easy way or hasn't had until recently an easy way to uh, to package your code, to distribute it, to import dependencies, other packages as dependencies to your project, like what you would do with um, Conda or PIP for Python. Uh, so basically, um, I was during the writing of my book. Like none, none of this was um, was uh, still out. And you know, one of the reviewers of um, my book was um, Andre Chertik. Andre Chertik is a scientist now at um, Los Alamos uh, National Lab. So I've I've known of Andre for a long time, even maybe from ten years ago from uh, some. Uh, computational science uh, forums, you know, I, I would see him answer questions. Uh, and Andre is also known of, so if you or your listeners are familiar with uh, SymPy, so Python package for symbolic uh, mathematical computing, Andre is the original creator of SymPy. And then that has, so that was from like mid 2000s and it has evolved into a very large community open source project. Uh, so he was one of the reviewers, uh, and at some point during the review process, we have um, we had a little, a few email exchanges. Uh, he was very helpful with the book. At the similar time, he joined the Fortune Standards Committee uh, with the goal to sort of accelerate and make the process, the the Standards Committee process. Uh, more open, more transparent, to get more input from the broader community. Because they have worked for a long time, very isolated. Uh, basically, it will be a collection of um, compiler vendors and a few other uh, Fortran experts um, uh, from the industry or academia. And they would basically work on language revisions, uh, but with limited interaction with the community. So. Andre joined the committee uh, on Twitter. He invited me and a few others uh, to join to submit feedback. He has started um, a GitHub repository for users to submit proposals for, for the language, to submit ideas. Hey, this is, uh, let's add this, or this is not good. How can we improve it? And so on. Uh, I started participating there. Uh, and a, a lot of people had it. There, there was a huge momentum. All of a sudden, there were all these people coming out of the woodwork, uh, coming together to discuss for trends, you know, write proposals, discuss ideas. And that was really great. That, that's still going on. Um, but what, what occurred to me during, you know, reading all the requests and issues, a lot of requests were requests for like uh, specific functions like features that could be implemented as something that, you know, you'd find in a standard library. So there was this uh, kind of a pattern where a lot of requests were like for things that, hey, uh, this could be part of a standard library, but there's there's not any. Um, so I suggested, why don't we start a standard library, kind of a, an unofficial uh, sort of community developed and approved um, standard library for Fortran and Andre was very encouraging, and uh, he he supported me. Uh, so we we together started this what uh, what we called at that time 
Fortran Lang organization. Lang because nowadays it's cool to just uh, append a suffix Lang to any language. Uh, say when you uh, buy a website domain for it. I have coincidentally, you know, I for years, both Andre and I and many other people have, you know, have known that these things have been missing. Um, and that like eventually somebody's gonna have to do something. Like coincidentally, I have a year before that purchased the fortranelang.org domain and like just had it sit there even, you know, I knew that eventually somebody's gonna do something with it. I just didn't know when and how or who. So, you know, just sitting there, I I opened a Fortran Lang uh, GitHub organization at the time and like it was just, you know, empty for a year. And then when Andre encouraged me to uh, start a stand standard library, then we put it under Fortran Lang. And then a few months later, ideas, uh, or maybe even actually a few weeks later, in discussing the standard library and, you know, putting code in the documentation, there came ideas about uh, the Fortran package manager and build system. So we started working on something we call FPM, Fortran package manager. That's something very similar to Rust's cargo. So it's Fortran specific. It's both a build system and a package manager. And it, it does everything for you. It has same defaults, but you can override any behavior with a, with a specific setting. And now there's already, uh, I believe, over 150 FPM uh, packages. Uh, it's only been developed uh, for about a year and a half now. And actually, an, an interesting uh, fact is that FPM is a pure Fortran project, which is kind of a, we're, we're all proud of it. Um, the, you know, people say, oh, Fortran is good for science uh, and engineering like simulation, but not, not anything else. But, you know, FPM is, is a really a, a sort of a user and kind of a systems programming kind of uh, application implementing pure Fortran. So um, we're really pr proud of that as a, kind of a case study uh, for Fortran. And then a few months later, after starting FPM, we made a website for Fortran. So if you go to fortran-lang.org, uh, you will be able to see you know, all, all kinds of resources about Fortran, what Fortran is, there are tutorials, there's a list of compilers, community projects, basically everything that you want to know about uh, Fortran today. And of course, how to contribute how to um, join the standards committee. The standards committee is always looking for new members. So if you want to help, uh, let me know. You can um, email me and um, you know, I'll, I'll help you get started. And likewise, for all other members of the Fortune Line community, like everybody's um, very helpful and very receiving to you know, people asking for help and, you know, uh, guidance, how to get started with this or that, how to contribute. So, you know, we need all the help we can get and we're having a lot of fun doing it. Perfect. And I think I will put all the links, especially to your book, where you get can get a 40% discount on Milan's book, Modern Fortran, with a special Perfect. code for all podcast listeners. So make sure to check it out if you're interested in Fortran. I will certainly get it. Um, and maybe to close the podcast with the last question, can we use Fortran for machine learning? 
Ah, excellent question. Okay, so traditionally Fortran has not been used much um, for machine learning. I, I believe originally it was like mostly Lisp and you know C, C plus plus. Nowadays it's a lot of a lot of Python on the high level interfaces. There were a few probably research projects doing uh, doing some neural nets in Fortran. Uh, but nothing like there's no big or there hasn't been, you know, uh, a go-to Fortune framework uh, for machine learning. Mostly just like more um, more basic statistics. Uh, during the writing of my book, actually for one of the chapters, um, I, I started, um, you know, I, I read, I, I was always interested uh, to an extent in machine learning. And I started reading um, Michael Nielsen's um, ebook on, um, uh, I think it's called deep learning, uh, neural networks and deep learning, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, so I thought, oh, maybe it would be interesting to implement this in Fortune for one of the chapters in the book as a, as a case study. And I did that. And then I, the, the chapter was like a monster. It was a 60 page thing because I had to explain both Fortune concepts and also, oh, there's all this like neural network stuff that you have to explain. So the editor was like, "No, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta rewrite this chapter from scratch. This is this is too much." So, anyhow, what came out of the chapter was a package that I called Neural Fortran. Uh, it didn't end up in the book, but what I find fascinating is that after I released it, and a few months later, an editor of a Fortran journal asked me to write a short paper about it. So I wrote a short paper about it. That was early 2019. And what I found fascinating is that from there on, like every week, I would get like two or three emails from people asking questions about it and like trying to use it. And that has never happened to me with any other projects, even though I had a few open source projects I put out and people are using it, but it was never this much of a response. And then like several months later, I started seeing papers, kind of like physics, uh, physics and like chemistry papers coming out that use neural Fortran for this stuff. And I'm like, wait, people want to use Fortran for machine learning. This is very interesting. And there's already like, you know, there's Keras, there's TensorFlow. Why don't people use that? Well, it turns out there's a lot of people that love Fortran, actually. You know, we often like to say, oh, I'm using this or that tool because of these rational reasons and these technical advantages that it has. And it does, you know, tools do have technical advantages, but often we make decisions based on what we really enjoy and what we like. I use a lot of Python nowadays. I, I do JavaScript. I do, I'm learning Rust. Um, I always do Fortran and Fortran always gives me the most pleasure programming, even though, I mean, Many things. Python is much easier to do certain things, um, certain high level things, or if I need to do something on the OS level, like I'm not going to do that in Fortran, but I never get the joy uh, that I get from Fortran out of these other languages. And maybe, maybe that will change. Maybe I'll discover a language that gives me more joy, but so far I haven't. Um, and okay, so machine learning, back to machine learning. Uh, yeah, so apparently people are using this, even though Neural Fortran is kind of a very proof, proof of concept, minimal minimal framework, I even call it micro framework. You can only do 
an arbitrary, deep, uh, deeply like dense, densely connected uh, networks. You can do, you can do CNNs. Although I have been, um, I, I've I've been uh, in, have been talking to a team from NASA, like trying to get some money uh, to develop uh, CNNs in Neural Fortran because they want to use it to apply it in their atmospheric model. Uh, to speed up some of these parameterization schemes that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So nowadays, a lot of machine learning in atmospheric science has to do with replacing more computation, computationally expensive uh, parameterization schemes with, uh, with a neural net that is pre-trained. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically, that way, they speed up uh, their deterministic simulation code. And... For weather prediction, that's important because when you start the model at, say, at midnight, the sooner you have the results out, the sooner you can, you know, give give the prediction out to, to your users. And because it's a prediction, it's very timely. Uh, time matters. The sooner you give it to them, the better for them. So there's greater value in it. There's So there's value in speeding up models. There's value in machine learning for atmospheric science. And because all of the atmosphere and ocean models are in Fortran and nobody's going to rewrite that anytime soon to other language, people are trying to find ways to put pre-trained machine learning models into, uh, into deterministic Fortran code. And I believe that's where neural Fortran really comes in uh, because you can, you know, there's a... There's kind of a, a framework uh, called, um, I believe it's called the Fortran, yeah, Fortran Keras Bridge that I collaborated on. It's by uh, Jordan Ott and collaborators from UC Irvine. So basically it's a, it's a framework that lets you train in Fortran and apply the, use the model in Keras or train in Keras and use the model in Fortran. So it's kind of like a, a basically what it says, Fortune Keras Bridge, mm -hmm. uh, exactly what it sounds like. So, and that uses neural Fortran as, a, as the Fortran piece. Uh, so that's really the development that we're uh, going, going toward in, not necessarily rewriting big code bases from one language to another, but getting the best out of each and applying it uh, where we need it. This is so interesting. You made me super excited about uh, the for using Fortran for machine learning, and maybe I'll give it a spin at some point. Building a CNN, who knows? Maybe I succeed, maybe I don't. But I think um, there was a super interesting podcast, Milan, and I really much appreciate you sharing so many information with us. Um, maybe after the podcast, we can be in uh, touch via email, and you can send me some links to like books where people can learn about more CFD for atmos like uh, meteorology, and we can put that in the description because I think also the Using CFD for these kind of um, weather prediction modeling, for example, topics is super interesting. And maybe people want to learn more about that and became inspired by listening to this podcast. So again, Milan, thank you so much. And to everyone listening, get Milan's book on Modern Fortran. Of course, Yusuf. Thank you so much. Um, I'm very happy uh, for this opportunity and to talk to you. And um, yeah, like Yusuf said, um, get a book if you want to learn Fortran and you can email me directly any question you have about it um, or if you need help um, that's that's basically kind of like a like a lifetime um, lifetime 
customer support. Um, uh, I answer all emails. I love it, Milan. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you, Seth, you too.